Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, a new book looking at 100 years of the BBC. And what's the future for the broadcaster? Plus, Monaco's Paige Reynolds is in Kiev, and she speaks with the editor of a magazine dedicated to Ukrainian photography. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, I've welcomed in the studio David Handy, author of The BBC, A People's History. The book looks at 100 years of what is considered a national institution here in the United Kingdom. The book is also the only major authorized history of the BBC, and is published right in time for the centenary celebrations this year. We spoke about BBC's history, of course, and how interconnected it is with British society. Here is David with more. David Handy, welcome to Monaco 24. Your new book, I mean, it's a proper tome about the BBC, a people's history. It must be quite challenging, actually, writing this book, David, because it's 100 years and it's a lot uh, it to is. put in, right? Yeah. I mean, in many ways, it was a nightmare. <laughs> uh, I mean, many, many years ago, I worked for the BBC. So I'm both an insider and an outsider. I've worked there and I've also studied it as an academic for over 20 years. So I've thought about the BBC a lot. And with the centenary on the horizon a few years ago, I thought, well, surely this is this is what needs to be done, a history of the BBC. Now, there have been histories before. Asa Briggs has, has written five huge volumes, 4,000 pages, but it's very expensive and it's very big. And I thought there was some value in making a reasonably accessible, researched but accessible one-volume history of the BBC. And it's slightly different to other histories, I think. And that subtitle is important, A People's History. And I think it's important for me in two ways. One, partly because of the political atmosphere at the moment, I thought it was really, really important to make the case that as a public service broadcaster, the BBC is ours. It's not the government's. It's not a state broadcaster. It's a, it's a national broadcaster, so it's got a relationship with the state, but the government seem to have got it in their head that it's theirs to do with what they please. And I thought there's a really important kind of manifesto point in a way to say, actually, no, this is ours. It's a public broadcaster. The other reason that it's a, a people's history is because I was given this unique opportunity about eight years ago, where the BBC approached me and said, look, we've got an archive of 600 or so interviews with former members of staff. It's the BBC's own oral history collection. And it's not yet publicly available. And we want to get it out there, accessible by the public. And it gave me a chance while working on this project to digitise and make available these interviews, a sneak preview. And that sneak preview allowed a much more personal, human aspect of the BBC's history to be told. And I think that's really important because people, I think, sometimes think of broadcasting, and especially an, an institution like the BBC, which seems so very formal and dignified. They think of broadcasting as something machine-tooled and formulaic. But I, it seemed to me that there's a story there about the people who make the programmes and 
they're real human beings. They're, they're imperfect. They're fallible. They bring to the task their own passions and their own weaknesses. And their very human sense of what they've been trying to do over the last hundred years seemed to me a really important story to tell. And it's interesting, right, David, that the BBC here in the United Kingdom, and I speak this as, as a foreigner, it has such an emotional connection with people that is very rare to see, even in other public broadcasters around the world. It is a little bit like the NHS, right? And, and I think that's why I think it's very suitable, the name of people's history, in a way. I think it's... This is something which is sometimes not fully appreciated by people who don't who don't live in Britain, and it's great to know that there are people around the world who see it in this way. It is not a marginal force or institution. We could say, for instance, that public radio in America, in the United States, is fairly marginal. It's a kind of belt and braces arrangement to provide that which the commercial sector doesn't provide. Well, the BBC is is different. It's been a national broadcaster for so long, and most of us use it. The vast majority of us use it in different ways. Even those who are critical of it use it. It's used by well over 90% of us at some stage each week, and that's partly because Actually, it's sort of everywhere. It's, it's, it does radio and it does lots of radio services. It does national radio, local radio, television, regional television, television in Scotland and Wales and so on. It's the world service, lots of different languages and so on. And of course, this has been one of the criticisms of the BBC. It's like a sprawling, expanding empire. But actually, the ethos of the BBC right from the beginning was to bring the best that has been thought and said to as many people as possible. And that is the abiding ethos of the BBC. It was influenced by people right from the beginning who had in their minds the kind of the words and the ideas of that great Victorian writer, Matthew Arnold. And he talked about how culture and civilization needed to be spread uh, sweetness and light, he called them, needed to be spread to everyone. It wasn't just about some people having access to the great things in life. It was that everyone had access to it. And that actually is why the licence fee, for instance, isn't just some strange funding mechanism. For John Reith, who founded the BBC, it, it, was, it was profoundly shaped by the idea that people with more money shouldn't get a better service. So there was a profoundly democratic notion behind this idea of everything for everyone. You mentioned there that the BBC is almost, you know, it's like a service to people in a way. And it's been proven historically and it's mentioned in your book, I think, a very important part of history in the Second World War. I think it was unique what they did as well, right? So how, how important was actually that period? I know... There's quite a few pages dedicated to that. As well. Yes, about 100 pages, uh, and, a <laughs> <laughs> which is a, it's a lot. But my word, the, the Second World War, I mean, I know it's a, it's a danger for us in Britain, right? We become obsessed with the Second World War. But actually for the BBC, it really was a mm. profound moment in its history. So it's already in 1939 a kind of national institution. It's a respectful institution. It's, there it is in Broadcasting House in the centre of London and, and so on. It's not yet really got a huge international presence. So it had launched the Empire Service in 1932 and in 1938 it had just started doing some language services, the Arabic service, the Latin American service and so on. But it was in the Second World War where 
apart from anything else, we'll come, you know, it broadcast on the home front as well, and that was really important, but, but it also broadcast internationally, particularly to occupied Europe. It was broadcasting in multiple languages to listeners who were in peril if they were caught listening to the BBC. And it had a commitment to telling the truth as far as it could in the circumstances available. Now, it was limited by the amount of information they had from government. There was some information that had to be held back. It wasn't untruthful, but it wasn't the whole truth. But what the BBC managed to do was to kind of support the morale and inform listeners throughout Europe. And that forged an affection, a bond with the BBC. It raised the BBC in people's minds as an important purveyor of truth, an organisation that had been on their side in some way. Now, on the home front, of course, it was the national broadcaster and right at the beginning of the war, theatres closed down and, and so on. And actually, it was a main source of information, but also entertainment and and escapism. And this is one of the things that I think changed at the BBC in the course of the war, was that it was really, really important to keep people listening, right? If the BBC was this service to sustain morale, people needed to listen. In order for people to listen, the BBC really had to work harder than it had ever done before to speak in a way that the people wanted it to speak, to be more accessible, to understand in a way that perhaps it hadn't fully in the 1920s and 1930s the conditions of working class life and to understand and to be sympathetic to what people were going through. And I think one aspect of that, which I think is a story that hasn't really fully been told until now, is the extent to which the BBC was itself a target of the Luftwaffe during the Second World War. The people at the BBC put their bodies on the line in order to keep broadcasting. Wow, that's that's impressive. I mean, that's another book coming in from you. <laughs> uh, David, do you think, you know, some people today, including perhaps the government, do you think, are they taking the BBC for granted in a way? Because, as you say, it does have a very precious role here uh, in the UK. I, I can't imagine the UK without the BBC in a way. But I feel people are just, you know, taking for granted to say, you know, I know that there might be some changes, but... I don't think an abrupt change might be the solution for all these problems, right? Well, I mean, I mean, clearly, I think if anyone reads my book, they'll know that mm. I'm, you know, sympathetic, not uncritical, but sympathetic. Mm. I do believe the BBC is in a in critical danger at the moment, and I think that is partly to do with the particular politics of the moment. I mean, we do have a government <laughs> that seems to be ideologically kind of uninterested in the BBC. In fact, I'd go further than that. There's something about the BBC that they just can't get to grips with. It, they associate it, I suppose, historically with some sort of sense of a nationalised industry, something collective, something publicly funded. The current government, I think, is quite capable of throwing away the BBC and not appreciating what they've thrown away until it's too late. Now, we know that they've frozen the licence fee. We know that since 2010, the BBC has already had its income reduced in real terms by 30%. That's going to carry on. We're going to lose more and more quality programmes. Now, 
I think one of the things that we have to get our heads around is that actually that's kind of what the government want. They want the programmes to become poorer. They want people to fall out of love with the BBC. Because at the moment, the thing that is saving the BBC, and has always saved it, is actually still most of us actually use it and quite like it. And some of us are very passionate about it. And that public support is, is actually going to be really, really vital. Because on the political front, we have a government that I think does not care for this extraordinary national institution. And it's interesting you talk about public support. I think, you know, I was reading a couple of graphs recently. Even among conservative voters or the elderly who tend perhaps to vote more conservative, they are still actually watching the BBC in, in large numbers. Actually, the, the BBC audience, they are getting older as well. So it's quite interesting that the government is being so critical of the BBC when their own voters still very much appreciate what they do. Yes, and I think that's partly telling us that mm. actually what we've got is a government that is on an ideological journey that is actually taking it further and further away from even its own heartland voters. And and I think this is one of the extraordinary things about the BBC, which does distinguish it from, say, something like National Public Radio in America, where, where in a sense, National Public Radio is what the sort of the Democrats or the sort of East Coast intellectuals would listen to. Now, the BBC you know, for better or worse, and I think better, uh, has generally had a broad appeal across the political spectrum. And I know, I know myself that there are people on the left and on the right who are critical of the BBC, sometimes for good reasons. But generally speaking, that notion that was always there, that the BBC has to be a broadly based broadcaster, trying to offer something for everyone is a really important and valuable thing to hold on to because it does mean that if you're listening to the BBC, you're part of a, a national conversation, you're part of a shared experience. And actually, in, a, in an age of fragmenting media, that's pretty valuable, isn't it? Well, fragmented and very divisive. I mean, if you, you read newspapers or even channels like Fox News, let's say, in the US, just one example. So I think the BBC becomes quite valuable. But it must be a really hard job to remain impartial or at least to appeal to everyone and I think it's getting harder and harder for them as well so I think we have that question about funding and everything but also editorially I think they're becoming more and more attacked wouldn't you say so? I think that's true I think impartiality is a really important element sometimes even in the BBC it gets mixed up with balance and I think that's a mistake mm. so I think for instance in the debate about Brexit for instance or in the 2019 general election for instance different things were being balanced that were shouldn't have been balanced. And, uh, for instance, go back a few years when the debates about climate change were happening, the BBC sometimes made the mistake of feeling that if they ever had a kind of qualified climate scientist on saying climate breakdown is real, they needed also to have a climate denier. Now, that is maybe balance, but it's not impartiality. Impartiality is about an open-minded pursuit of the truth and then calling out the truth as you find it. Now, politically, it is a really, really difficult moment. It does feel as if it's divisive. And Peter Oborn, a journalist on the right, who I wouldn't normally necessarily myself be quoting, I think made an excellent point, which is that we are currently in a moral emergency. And the reason we're in a moral emergency is that we have a prime minister who is a liar and has encouraged a, a looseness with the truth. Now, 
broadcasting that has generally relied on notions of fair play, that it can balance debate, that it can have an impartial discussion, really depends on what one constitutional historian has called the, the good chap theory of government. In other words, that politicians would talk in good faith. They would be opinionated, but they would talk in good faith. But if you've now got a situation where untruths, people are willing to utter untruths, that does make it really hard for a national broadcaster like the BBC. And David, sorry, I'm going to get, let's get a little bit emotional here. I just want to know, if, is there a show at the BBC or a radio program that, was, that is very special to you? Like, historically, it doesn't matter if it's current or an old one. I know this is kind of the, those tricky questions. <laughs> that is a really tricky question because there are some programs that... So there are programs like The Archers, the right? Archers. A radio soap opera that has been going for over, well, well over 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, whatever it is, that, is, uh, that I like because it's just part of my life, right? It's the wallpaper of my life and it's not particularly special or amazing but it's part of my life. And, and for a lot of people, that is an important factor. It's not a kind of quality thing. It's just that it's, it's woven into the fabric of your, your, your whole life. So that would be one. But if I was to also sort of pick out some, some recent highlights, I would say actually something like Strictly Come Dancing is actually a really profoundly good example of public service broadcasting. And it's really important to point to a programme like that because people will think and argue that public service broadcasting really is about the kind of the serious stuff that, that the commercial sector wouldn't do, like news or opera or whatever it might be. But no, entertainment and really good quality entertainment is also part of a life well lived. And the BBC has been interested in, as one of its director generals said, creating true citizenship and the leading of a full life. And the leading of a full life is also about pleasure and escape as much as it is about information. Something like Strictly Come Dancing ticks, if you like, so many of the boxes. It's one of those programmes where, to put it in a cliché term, the nation kind of comes together. It's a shared Saturday night experience. It's really well made. There are resources that go into that programme that mean it's not cheap, right? There's, you know, a dress will have 2,500 sequins on it. That means an extraordinary amount of kind of resource in terms of wardrobe, makeup, craftsmanship. It's a very, very well made popular programme. Hugh Weldon, a great BBC figure, said the job of the BBC is not just to, to make the, the good popular, but the popular good. And Strictly is a really good example of that. And and actually, it's a kind programme. It's a supportive programme. It's a nurturing programme. There are some talent shows which thrive on cruelty, and I don't think you get that with Strictly. And they're not doing well anymore. They're not doing well anymore. So actually, there is this space for kind of kindness as well. So, so I would point to a programme like Strictly Come Dancing as actually a really important example of what the BBC does well and should carry on doing. Thank you very much, David. And the BBC, A People's History, is out now. Next, we head to Ukraine. Caught in the midst of an uncertain security situation, international attention is fully fixed on what happens next. Our monocle team on the ground have been spending time getting to know the locals who proudly call Kiev, home to hear their views and how current tensions are impacting their lives. One of those was Dana Pavlika, who runs independent publishing house Osnovi. 
Founded in 1992, the company has a long history, but since taking over just over a decade ago, Pavlika has made it her goal to bring the publishing house into the 21st century and celebrate what makes Ukraine so unique. One of those developments is Salut, a brand new magazine dedicated to Ukrainian photography. With its first issue out of the door and the second ready to go, Monaco's Paige Reynolds caught up with Dana in their brand new shop come a coffee house, Osnovi store, in the heart of Kiev's Golden Gate district. Our company, it's a, actually a really old historic company in Ukraine and many people know about Osnovi. And in the 90s, the company used to do academic publishing and Osnovi used to translate world classics into Ukrainian. And then, you know, times have changed and uh, one of the founders of Osnovy, my mom, passed away. So the company went through a few years of, you know, of difficulty. It was on the verge of bankruptcy and it kind of lost vision of what the company was supposed to do, you know, who was the company for. And really randomly, I, I decided to take over uh, of, of what that was 12 years ago and... Uh, uh, try to completely turn it around and currently we make arts publications, we do books on photography and we mainly do English language books and we also specialize in doing, you know, really unique, difficult books, you know, for the Ukrainian market. Sometimes people and companies come to us for consultancy in, you know, the printed world basically. And behind you, there's a display, I presume, of some of the books that you guys publish. These awesome Lviv, awesome Dnipra, Odessa, Kiev, these guides at the top have sort of caught my eye. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about these? Are these city guides that you guys have worked on? Uh, yeah, all, all the books that, that are on the shelves in, in our store are our books that we did over the years that we, we currently you know sell. And the awesome series... Uh, it's a special series to us because it's something we started doing in 2012. Awesome Ukraine. It, you know, it's not really a guide. It's kind of a guidebook and, you know, it's a little encyclopedia of what is special about the country or a city, right? And it has a lot of fun facts and random knowledge and really, you know, kind of ironic photography. So it's a small souvenir that you can, you know, give to someone that someone kind of can, in 30 minutes, understand, like, what is this country about or what this, you know, what a Ukrainian city is about, like Lviv or Kiev or Odessa. I'm sort of interested, these guides, did you feel there was a market for sort of changing the impression of Ukraine? Did you think perhaps it was all a little bit one-dimensional and it was sort of time to, to show a little bit more? You know, I was so, I'm still always so annoyed when I see, you know, this kind of pompous PR that Ukraine wants to show, like we are, you know, have mountains and, you know, wonderful people. You know, it's just kind of boring, whatever... Whatever I see around me, I just find it boring. I think Ukraine is very exciting in the weird and the awkward, in the, you know, and sometimes, you know, the ugly. And um, that's what we do. We always try to see what exciting story we can tell about Ukraine. So definitely we created a market for more kind of out-of-the-box thinking about Ukraine. And we're going to come to 
your newest publication in, in just a minute, but I guess while we're still talking about the story of Ukraine, obviously there's a lot going on right now in terms of the security situation. There's a lot of Western press that are writing about Ukraine. Do you feel like there's an accurate representation of Ukraine at the moment? Is there an accurate representation of the situation at the moment in the English language press? I think that, you know, the representation that you have now will, you know, it comes and goes. So now it's Ukraine is, you know, as a topic of conversation because, you know, there's a risk of war. But uh, I think that there is a lack of stories about what's, you know, how people live here, that we have art and photography and and um, music and culture and I, I think these are the stories that have to be prominent in the press internationally in the English language press and these kinds of stories will really put Ukraine on the map because um, I think that's what really resonates with with an audience uh, in you know internationally because obviously right now everyone's scared of the war but um, you know the news cycle will change and we will continue living with Russia and they will be you know a pain in the ass as, as always but uh, you know we have to have other other stories except for what's hot right now and now it's the war topic Russia is you know it's it's a constant issue you know of concern for us every day for years for centuries and this is something that we've we are grown to live with and we will have to continue living with it and I'm a believer that we really have to tell you know exciting stories about Ukraine constantly to for the world to know about Ukraine and and, and be more interested in us permanently We've been speaking to a few people here. We spoke to a filmmaker who you know, Mark, and he was talking about... He had a similar line to you in that he said it's sort of business as usual, Russia's been here for ages. But he did say that he was kind of ready to leave if that is something that he needs to do. Are you the same? What we've been doing in our business for for the last couple of years is tr- is doing a lot of remote work. So I believe the company can exist successfully if we have to dislocate. So you know you have to be realistic. My husband is from Donetsk and he had to pack up and leave, and and you know he he his parents are still there. So you know horrible things do happen. Do I think this will happen? I don't think so. And I think that, you know, we business as usual just have to keep calm and carry on and, uh, you know, do what you do best. And, you know, for us, it's make awesome books. So talking of awesome books, let's talk about the magazine that's sitting in front of me. It's still in its plastic. Um, It's got this incredible uh, front cover. It's called Salute. It's issue one of Salute. Tell me a little bit about this publication and how it came to be. I will elaborate a bit about the title because it's both uh, the name of a Soviet-era camera that was made in Ukraine in the Soviet times. It is also the name of a very famous modernist, brutalist building in, in Kiev. It's a hotel. It's called Hotel Salut. And, you know, it's kind of like an architectural masterpiece. And also, 
it means fireworks, you know, so something kind of, you know, exciting and, and you know, a celebration. So for us, this, this is a magazine on, on Ukrainian photography. We've, we wanted to do a magazine for ages. We love photography. We, we publish a lot of books on photography. Uh, and um, the first issue was on Ukrainian female photographers. And the second issue, it's, it's available for pre-order and it's coming out shortly. And it's on the 90s, so it's a really exciting issue because, you know, it's, it's an exciting topic and it's super, super interesting in terms of Ukrainian photography of the 90s and of what Ukrainian photographers are doing right now. I read in the introduction to this first issue that, you know, you were going to go for this mix of old and new photography. And do you think that is because there hasn't really been a publication before that's ever really focused primarily on Ukrainian photography? So this is sort of the start of the archive. Yeah, we, we, we mix, we mix, you know, archival material. We, you know, we, we showcase a photography, you know, from back in the day and, and, and from now, so, you know, you can really see, you know, the parallels, the illusions, and, you know, that's why it's so great working with a magazine format, because you can really take a topic and study it super in-depth, you know, and you can do a lot of experimentation, and, you know, it's really exciting. And for the issue that's coming out, the 90s issue, we teamed out with deposit photos on the issue, and we actually even have a project done by uh, one of like the prominent Ukrainian photographers, Roma Mikhailov. So he did something with kind of you know archival material, you know, to kind of have you know an allusion to the 90s from from now, from this moment, right now. So you know, it's a lot of cool stuff. You know, you can really, really go in go into this in depth. I also noted you you wrote in that intro when it comes to ukrainian history photography sometimes was the only way for genuine reflection i wonder if you could elaborate on that and sort of explain the ukrainian context you know this is this is really i think you can understand this this theme of why it was genuine expression in the 90s um, issue and you can see what what the photographers did in the 90s, that it was really something that, um, you know, that photographers just, just captured life, you know, how it was. And sometimes I think they didn't even realize that what they did is, is not just taking a photo, it's, it's art, it's, it's history, it's, it's something, you know, it's, you know, these are masterpieces. But to them, I think, to many photographers who took photos, it was, uh, you know, just taking a photo sometimes. For example, Chekmenov, who is, you know, one of the top Ukrainian photographers, we, we're publishing in the, com in the current issue, the 90s issue, his, his project called Passport. And he just took photos of people, of, of sometimes, you know, people who, very elderly people who have a very difficult life, who don't leave their house. And he took their photos for their passport. But in that photo, you see how the people live and what's around these people. And uh, I think, you know, it's, you know, that series, to him, he was just taking a passport photo. 
but right now it's an international masterpiece. That's what it is. You know, it should be in a museum. And obviously when you start a magazine, you're kind of, particularly a photography magazine, the format must be really important to you. So how you're sort of accompanying these photos with text, how much information to give people, how, how, how to give it context. How did you go about doing that for, for Salute? Well, you know, we, we have a phenomenal team. So the team that, you know, the Osnova team does the Salute as well, you know, does our design. We have do our all in-house design. And, you know, everyone who does this, this publication, you know, our editor, our head of design, our director, you know, they, we're all obsessed with design. We're obsessed with print. You know, it's, it's a calling, you know, in this world of TikToks and phones, whatnot, you know, it's... You know, there's nothing really like touching a printed publication. And magazines, you know, they're different than books. You know, it's just something special. They have a mystique about them. And uh, so, it, you, you know, everything happened very easily because it's a work of love. Amazing. And is this going to be sold purely online? Do you have any um, stockists kind of elsewhere? First of all, you can buy the issue online always, and you can pre-order the issue. There's another actually special thing about the magazine. They have The magazine will always have and always has two covers, so you can get either one or the other, you know, so it's two different covers always. And we hope that the magazine will sell through stockists internationally in special, special stores, you know, that love books, love magazines, so, so we're excited. Thank you very much to Paige and Dana. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fp at monaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Ming Ti featuring Austin Powers with... BBC. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Put on the telly.